Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. From citizen to ally to artist, the journey out of scarcity servitude and into imagination leadership. This episode continues the story of the Honest Citizen Club, a new performance artwork born out of the particular circumstance of coronavirus, but responding to the more enduring condition of scarcity mindset. We are reflecting on scarcity worldview as a primal human instinct that makes us a danger to others and ultimately to ourselves. This new performance artwork was designed to help us collectively orient ourselves away from scarcity and to imagine together a post-coronavirus world characterized by abundance. This is Reflection 2. Wartime which many leaders have said coronavirus is more than analogous to, requires war efforts. Whatever truth is in that analogy, the war efforts in World War I and II were different to now in some ways. If we are in a war, it is one in which being an ally is not just determined by your nationality. It's not a default of birth that can be undone only by the conscious choice to commit treason. You are not automatically an ally. You have to choose to become one. No one alive today would want to have lived through the Second World War and then reflect on having been actively or passively complicit with the Nazis. This would be a regret, too difficult to bear. So how can we avoid lamenting in the future the ways that we lived now through coronavirus? How can we be sure that we become allies since we are not automatically so. It has been a slow process of awakening for people to realize that the simplest of efforts determine our allegiance. They're so negligible, so minute, that they are often actually things we don't do rather than do. Like not going out even though it's sunny, not going on spring break, not hoarding all of the loo roll. I have some sympathy for those who couldn't make the cognitive connection quick enough between going on a cheerful spring break and a potential act of manslaughter. But it's these tiny, mostly non-actions that are the new war effort. This is what makes you an ally. These are the disciplines less painful than regret. This, as my friend Phil would say, is type two fun. But all of these moral choices amount to simply just doing what your government says. They amount to how to move beyond our citizen instincts to a basic citizenship. But what lies beyond that? Beyond the assurance that we are allies, not enemies? How can we take hold of the more imaginative possibilities that lie within this generally horrific experience for the creation of new cultural forms new ways of living? How could we emerge out of lockdown 
into a life a little less stylized by scarcity, a life a little less individualist, now that we know that we are not, by being human microbe-sharing beings, ever really just individuals? How can we be less consumerist, now that we know that the things that we really miss when they're gone are relationships and not things? How can we dominate the planet less, now that we know that animals and clear city skies have been waiting in the wings for such a fearless time to roam as this? How can we reduce our carbon footprint, now that we know it's possible to live without mall ratting and cheap flight hopping? How can we re-enter as beings that are valued for just being, and not for what we do or what we consume or how productive we are? How can we re-enter society not as though we are rubber bands currently stretched back with the restraint of not fully being in control and then snap back into society and disastrously make up for it all with ramped up violent busyness and ferocious consumerism. But as people who have learned to not utterly hate on things like rest, silence, repetition and ordinariness, being unproductive and being unappraised, how can we remain as connected to our neighbours, especially our lonely neighbours, as we are now, once this is over? How can we learn to commune like we're in a crisis, even when we're not in a crisis? How can we re-enter the world as family, as community, as a little more like a bunch of I relate therefore I ams, and a little less like a bunch of I produce or I consume therefore I ams? How can we be sure not to let capitalism use its marketing noise to drown out the memory of the silence that we felt in lockdown, the in-real-life silence that made audible the sounds in our imaginations of another way of living, of any other way of living, of moving, than to the beat of the consumerist drum that we have mistaken for our heartbeat? How can we, as Andy Crouch says, move the horizons of possibility for the whole of culture, now that the firm, once thought immovable bolts that forged the fixed structures of our culture have been loosened and destabilized? What new forms could we build with these raw materials like time, space, and present-minded relationships? Andy Crouch says that we have lived under the notion that culture is shaped somewhere else, by elected officials, especially national ones, by celebrities, by the media. Whatever cultural shape these others have come up with has then been handed to us and we've been shaped to fit into it. We are powerless. On the other hand, we have also been accustomed to believe that we are autonomous, powerful individuals in control of our own lives, undetermined by anyone else. These two narratives are essential tenets for the thriving of a capitalist regime, even though they contradict each other utterly. Now, Andy says, we are in a situation where life and death is not in the hands of a centralized or celebrity authority, but literally in our hands and within our local embodied neighborhoods. 
but notice that even as power has been properly decentralized and now localized in this way, where the choices that we make as individuals make more of a difference than ever, at the same time, we are being disabused of the myth of ourselves, each as a self-determining, powerful, fully discrete individual. And the marketing schemes that peddle this idea have been exposed as fake news. We have an opportunity to remember that deep culture making is always a local community mandate. And in the same moment, through the same circumstances, the opportunity to let go of the tragic and alienating myth of the autonomous individual and begin to imagine something else. Because as Andy writes, it's impossible for coercive authority to increase people's capacity for love and service of others. This is the role of faith, which is able to move the horizons of possibility. This is imagination leadership, which ultimately leads all other forms of leadership. Deep cultural formation happens within and through imaginative people in communities, not through coercive top-down legislations. It's formed by images and stories and metaphors and phrases that line out the world differently, apart from our fear and hurt. This is where Walter Brueggemann comes up with the idea of the Ministry of Imagination, where we actively conjure and propose alternative futures to the ones that we are led to believe are singularly inevitable. Here, he says, lies the role of the artist, who we might also call a prophet, who we might also call a danger. Because the artist threatens every totalizing scheme or regime by calling out fake news on the pretensions of the present and by daring to announce that the way of life, the consumerism, the planet rape, the script of the autonomous individual that we are all deeply committed to can be called into question and even departed from. But here's the problem. In the moments of my most intense fear, it's precisely my imagination that shuts down. I have to cling to the imaginative capabilities of others. This is why the Honest Citizen Club is done in performance units where we take turns to act as those ministering imagination or those being ministered imagination to us. But imagination is not just about conjuring up new, original ideas. It's equally about receiving and bringing into the present the work of those in the past who formed and reformed cultures, who were imagination leaders in times similar to ours now. The story, as my friend Barney says it, goes like this. There were two great pandemics that struck the Roman Empire. The first one was in AD 165 and the second in AD 249. The mortality rate is hard to know for sure, but it could have been up to 30%. But this is the interesting thing. The survival rate for Christians and people who were friends with Christians was much higher. This was not because of large-scale healing miracles. On the contrary, if such healings occurred, we have no records of them. Very simply, it is because the pagans ran as fast as they could from anyone showing any symptoms. By contrast, 
On this occasion, the Christians were self-sacrificial and cared for those around them, even at the risk of their own lives. Even though many Christians lost their lives through these selfless acts, they preserved the lives of more than they lost. Andy Crouch asked the question, What happened after the plague was over, when the storm calmed and the shit settled again? People remembered and reflected. After you have recovered from the plague, who would you want to be with? To whom would you turn to for leadership? Those who had fled at the first sign of trouble? Or the household of the neighbor who had brought you food and water? Care and concern, at great risk to themselves. It was this that on its own was a huge contributing factor to the preservation of individual lives, but also to the whole community of Christianity more broadly. It's stories like these that hoist my sinking scarcity spirit up, because this story doesn't actually judge me for wanting to preserve my own life, for wanting to live and have legacy rather than die and be forgotten. It's just that stories like these show me the truth of Jesus' mystic teaching, that you have to kind of lose your life in order to preserve it. Stories like this turn my fear on itself, where my own lack of courage to be kind is shown up to be the highest threat to me, because I am assured that one way or another, in spirit if not in body as well, it will kill me. Loss of life to save it is a notion that takes some imagination work to believe its truth. Scarcity mindset is its notional antithesis, self-preservation through the demise of the other, and takes only instinct and no imagination to believe in. Loss of life to save it is a pithy summary of an explosion of imaginative ways to live to which there is no limit. The imaginative work of speaking it and living it is best done in community. And that is what the Honest Citizen Club is for. Thank you for joining us. If you don't know who we are, we are Fur. We communicate Christian theology and worldview through contemporary art, cultural artifacts, and new rituals to create fresh encounters with the faith for emerging generations. Stay tuned for more episodes as we reflect together over the next few months of the performance. If you want to become an honest citizen, we'd love you to join us. You can join by visiting our website, furproduction.com, and follow us on Instagram, at FurProduction, where you can also experience our other works. This episode was produced by Fur, edited by Mike and Hansen, and included excerpts from Andy Crouch, Walter Brueggemann, and Barney Asprey. The music was composed by Officer.
for Christianity through art, Christianity as art.